It is good to be back with you guys. Uh, ben, you in here? Ben with y'all. Everybody give a big clap for Ben. Yeah, stepping in to preach last week. Uh, I loved it. My only problem, you preached for 27 minutes. Um, don't get used to it, okay, people? So, especially today, because I'm still kind of getting over a sinus infection, so the concept of time is like detached from me. So, our scripture reading for today comes out of Revelation 2 starting in verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among, walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this unique section of Revelation that we get into now, where we get to see the insight, the rebuke, the approval that your son has for these churches in the province of Asia. And I pray that as we go through each of these messages over the next coming weeks, I pray that you would help us to see where we're at in these. That these messages that your son gave to these churches so long ago, they apply to us today and they come against us in many ways today. And so Father, I pray that you would give us just a softness to be able to hear what your son is saying about the church. And even as your son says here, I, I pray that you would help us to have an ear that can hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. And so, Father, as we explore the, the, the reality and the necessity of love for your son, I pray that you would give us an ear to hear, that you would give us conviction, and that you would invite us back into a love that prioritizes Jesus above all. And so, Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to have a restored sense of love for your son today. We trust you for it and ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, we are a couple uh, weeks into our new series on Revelation, and much of what we've done so far is by way of introduction, right? We've only done two weeks, and so the first week, if you, if you remember, we did 10 principles on how to understand and interpret this strange book, and then last week, 
uh, we got an introduction to what is in many ways the main character of the book, Jesus Christ, right? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ is the full title of the book. And last or a couple weeks ago, we got to see who this Jesus is and we got to see his strength and glory in, in ways that we don't often think of him. And now we begin to get into some of the purpose of the letter. So we've been introduced to the main character, which is Jesus Christ, and now we get to see exactly who it is that this letter of Revelation was written to and why it was written to them. If you remember back to that first sermon about the 10 principles, this is a letter that was written to seven churches in the province of Asia. And so today we're, we're starting what is traditionally called the, the seven messages. These seven churches in the province of Asia in 96 AD, Jesus is going to tell the Apostle John what he sees in these churches and how they need to be either approved or reproved. And before, before we get into the, the church in Ephesus, this message here, I, I want to do a little work to set up these seven messages because, again, the book of Revelation is a letter to these seven churches. And so we, we would be served well by understanding the, the structure and intent of what is actually going on here, okay? So, so first, just a couple principles for understanding these seven messages, and then we'll get into the one in Ephesus. It's important for us to see the intent behind seven churches. Do you remember one of the principles that I gave in the first week? I'm gonna, it's going to be talking back and forth. Anybody? Yeah, yes, numbers are... Symbolic, not statistics. We have a podcast. If you want to go back and study it a little bit more, it'd be good for us to do that. Numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic and not statistics. Numbers function importantly in the thrust of this book as they communicate certain ideas through their symbolic nature. And it's obvious that the number seven is symbolic throughout the entire book. The number seven here in Revelation and also throughout much of scripture represents the idea of completion or wholeness. And Jesus here intentionally chooses seven churches to address in this book. Now, were there more than seven churches in the province of Asia? Yes, that's right. There were more than seven. Did those other churches need some addressing from Jesus? Yes, every, every church does to some degree. And so we need to understand that while the messages given in the book of Revelation are specific to these seven churches, they are also thematic of the church as a whole. Jesus choosing seven churches to address here is in many ways addressing the universal church, the whole church. He's symbolically addressing the church as a whole. These are specific to these churches, but they are also thematic and universal to the church as a whole. Now, that's more than just a, a nice detail for us to understand, because if we see that Jesus says in these seven messages something to the church as a whole, then from there, we can actually get an important insight into the assessment that Jesus has of the church as a whole. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Let me explain it this way. The seven messages in this book of Revelation are given and laid out in what's called a chiastic structure. Has anyone ever heard that word, chiasm? Raise your hand. Yeah. Oh, great. We've got some smart people in here. The rest of you are smart too, but you'll be smarter after you know what a chiasm is. Um, so a, a chiasm is a literary device that's used to provide insight on emphasis. 
And so a, a simple structure of a chiasm in a sentence or in a paragraph or an idea would be something like this. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Does that make sense? So A's correspond, B's, C's, and the D correspond. It's a chiasm. And, and much of what we get in a chiasm is trying to show us the emphasis of the message. And the emphasis of a chiasm is usually found in the very first parts and in the very middle. Now, this is why I say this. Why don't you take a look at this for the seven messages of Revelation? The seven messages to these seven churches are in a chiastic structure. And if a chiastic structure is meant to show us emphasis within the beginning and at the middle, what do we see there? That Ephesus and Laodicea, the first and the seventh message, are at risk. The second and the sixth are doing pretty well, and Jesus basically says to keep going. Pergamum and Sardis are corrupted, and then Thyatira is also corrupted. And so by doing a chiastic structure in these seven messages, what Jesus is trying to get across here is that there's a, there's a little bit good going on, but overall the church is corrupted and at risk. Happy Sunday. <laughs> and so Jesus is trying to give a message to the church as a whole, and his assessment as he gives these messages is to a church as a whole that is at risk and in danger. There's risk and corruption in the church. In these churches, yes, but more so in the church that is threatening its purity and longevity. So those are, those are two important principles to understand, but I, I have one more here that I think is important for us to get across as we get into these seven messages. And it's very simple. Change is possible. All throughout these seven messages, Jesus is going to call these churches that are in great pressure, in great trial, some of them doing very good, most of them doing very terribly. Jesus is going to call them to change, which I think is really important for us to get across here at the very beginning, that the church, these churches, you are not stuck. Jesus is going to have some very strong words of repentance for the church throughout these seven messages. But he does so because change is possible. Jesus gives these messages because change and repentance and restoration is all possible. Here's how I want you to hear all of these sermons throughout the next seven weeks. There is great potential for growth and for change, no matter which of these messages that you end up finding yourself the most in. If Jesus thought the Christians in these seven churches were doomed, he would have just shut it down. But he doesn't. Rather, in his mercy, because he walks in the midst of these churches and always has his finger on their pulse, Jesus gives the call to change because change is possible. I want you to have that as a banner as you hear the rest of these seven messages over the next seven weeks. Because there's going to be some hard words, friends. <laughs> Jesus goes hard in these seven messages. But he does so because change is possible for these churches, for the church as a whole, and for you personally. Your future as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, can actually have growth. Your future can be bright as a Christian. Some of you need to, need to hear that today. So with that in mind, 
Let's jump into the message that Jesus has for the church in Ephesus. Now, it's hard for me to overstate just how much I would love to be a part of a church like this. I would love to be a church like to be a church like this. It is so ideal. I mean, look at how Jesus affirms him. Look at ver- look at verse two. Jesus says, "I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and that you, in all of this you've not grown weary." That's a wonderful church. <laughs> They, they, they toil and yet do so patiently. They know that the Christian life is not one that always involves ease, and they accept that reality with a patient endurance. They get to work on their own discipleship, and they don't complain about it. They, they don't put up with false teachers who are evil. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? In the modern church? The, I mean, these people can actually recognize what a false teacher is, that these people know their doctrine, they know what is true, and they can take that knowledge and use it as a filter for everything they hear out in the world. They can spot false teaching. Do you know how rare that is? They can spot false teaching, and not just spot it, but they also have the boldness to call out those false teachers. Oh my goodness. These people are legit. They're able to spot false teaching and not allow those teachers any influence in their life together. And in all of this, they are patiently enduring while they bear the name of Christ. In other words, they are public Christians in a hostile environment and they accept the difficulty that comes with that patient, comes with that with patience. They don't hope that Their faith is the thing that doesn't come up if someone asks them what they did last Sunday. (laughs) They're not that. They're public with their faith. They own their Christianity and they patiently endure the consequences of owning that faith publicly. This is a church that any of us would love to be a part of. And it goes even deeper than what Jesus lays out here. You see, Ephesus is a well-known church throughout the New Testament, so we actually get different snapshots of their journey along the way. And when we look at what Jesus affirms in them here and compare that to what's been said about them throughout their journey in the rest of the New Testament, we see that this is a church that actually listens to rebuke or warning and follows through with change. Let me give you an example. So in Acts 20... The Apostle Paul is in Ephesus, and he's about to head off to Jerusalem. But before he leaves Ephesus, he speaks to the elders at these churches and gives them a strong warning. And the warning is this, keep your guard up. He says, keep your guard up because there are false teachers that will come in from the outside, and there are false teachers that will come up from the inside. Don't be fooled. But keep a close watch on your doctrine. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the Apostle Paul's last warning to this church in Ephesus before he goes off to Jerusalem, where he ends up being killed. And this church, based off of what Jesus says here, it seems like they listened. <laughs> they kept a close watch and now are able to spot false teaching and silence it when it comes up. Much of what Paul teaches them in his letter called Ephesians or what John teaches them in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it seems like they've taken 
pretty well to heart. This church is ideal in almost every single way. It seems like this church has everything it would take to make it. If Revelation is a book about enduring, which it is, this would be a good church to put your money on. That's gonna make it through to the end. And yet, this is the only church throughout the seven messages in which Jesus himself threatens to take away what he calls their lampstand. Threatens to take away the thing that symbolically sets them apart as a church. This great church that knows good doctrine and then puts it into practice, that endures patiently, Jesus threatens to take away from them their very existence as a church. The longevity of the church in Ephesus is not threatened by the pressures or the trials or the persecutions that are outside. The longevity of the church in Ephesus is threatened by Jesus himself saying, if you don't change this, I will take away your lampstand. Jesus is ready to shut the whole thing down. All for what? Because of what? what, would, what would, why would Jesus purposely shut down this church in Ephesus that seems so healthy on the outside? He says this, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. All of the healthy doctrine, all of the healthy church practices, all of the patient endurance of being a public Christian, it all counts for nothing because they've abandoned the love that they had at first. That's Jesus' assessment. And abandon, in many ways, is the key word, right? This is not the normal cooling of zeal that happens over the course of one's, Christian's li one's Christian life. This is then intentional forsaking. They have forsaken, given up on the love that they had at first. The love that they first felt for Jesus they've walked away from. They've abandoned it. They have forsaken it. And Jesus says, everything else that you're getting right, all your little programmatic things that are going on that are going so well, like Icon Institute that's teaching people good doctrine, right? It counts for nothing if you don't have love. If you don't have a love for Jesus. And this is all a tragedy in many ways because the love that this church in Ephesus had at first was exemplary. Again, we get really unique snapshots of this church's history. And in Acts 18 and 19, we get recorded for us the birth of this church in Ephesus. So, when it first started. Now, Ephesus was a metropolitan hub that was one of the worldwide centers for pagan and imperial worship. But when the gospel came into that city, it flipped everything on its head. And so, Acts 18 speaks of new Ephesian Christians burning the tools they once used for pagan worship. They give over everything, everything about their past life that was so important to them before they met Jesus, they throw it in the fire and they burn it up. The upheaval that the gospel brought to Ephesus was so great that there was even a riot throughout the city 
because people who used to make money off of pagan practices no longer had a business, and people get mad about that. So many people were converting to Christianity that there was no more money to be made off of pagan practices. The very economy of the city was disrupted. The gospel at first swept through this city, and the passion was great. The love for Jesus was so great in the beginning of these Christians' lives. They prioritized their Savior above all, leaving behind everything they had done before in order to worship and follow this new Savior. And yet now, here they are, 40 years later or so, and their very existence as a church is threatened because they've forsaken the love they had at first. In Jesus' mind, a church that does everything right, that gets everything right, and yet lacks the real passion of prioritizing love, that church is no church at all, or at least in Jesus' mind, not a church worth keeping around. And if this applies to a church across a whole city like Ephesus, it certainly extends to us as individual Christians, friends. Our discipleship is at risk, friends, when we've lost the love we've had at first. If you are a Christian, you've probably had that time of spiritual awakening and growth, right? Anybody remember that? that time of awakening and growth. Maybe it was the very beginning of your faith or maybe it was just a a reawakening for you later in life, but there was a time in which Jesus was everything to you. Do you remember that? Jesus was everything. There was no difficulty in prioritizing time with him. Not because time was more free than it is today. Many of us were in college, right? but because you knew then that you had to be near to the one you loved. You wanted to read your Bible. You wanted to pray. Worshiping Jesus felt like breathing in those moments. And yet now, years later, the love is lost. And yes, again, it might be the natural cooling of zeal that happens over time, but even then, is that really okay? (laughs) Sometimes we just kind of think about that. It's like, well, that just happens. You know, at first you get really worked up. It's kind of like a church camp high, right? Everyone says that. And then you mature and you kind of slowly cool in your zeal. Is that really okay even then though? Sure, that cooling of zeal happens to everyone, but, that doesn't, but does that make it right? Our maturity in the faith in no way has to equal the loss of love that made you prioritize Jesus above all. That's not a maturing faith. And if that's you, and and my guess is that's many of us today, let's look together at Jesus' solution for this problem. Jesus calls them out, tells them they're doing a lot right, but the one main thing they're missing. And Jesus, out of his love and mercy, (laughs) provides them very clear directions on how to restore the love that they had at first. So so look look, look with me at verse five. Remember... Therefore, from where you have fallen. So first step is this, remember. 
in the effort to restore and recapture the love that they had at first, Jesus wants them to experience some spiritual nostalgia. Wants them to look back on those early days of faith and reminisce about the love that they had at first. Remember that that this church experienced a very real upheaval when the gospel of grace came to them. The whole city was turned on its head. And Jesus wants them to look back on that with longing. Remember from where you have fallen. Look back at it. Not to look back on it with derision as if their passion back then was somehow childish. It's easy to do that, right? Look back at your early days of faith and be like, oh man, I was so young in my faith back then to care so much. What? (laughs) We're not to look back on those early days of passion and just be, be dismissive about how that passion was just immaturity. Jesus doesn't say for them to remember from where they have grown. He says to remember from where they have fallen. It's not maturity that lost them this first love. (laughs) Think about it for yourself. Let's do that right now. Why don't you you just, let's all take a breath together. Why don't you close your eyes for just a second. Think about the time where following Jesus meant everything to you. Think about that time. Think about that place where you used to always read your Bible. That kitchen table or that room where journaling felt like breathing, where praying felt natural. Reflect on that for a moment. Now look back at me. Those were the times where you could read what Paul says in Philippians about counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and know exactly what he's talking about. You could give that a hearty yes, and Jesus wants this church and us who have lost that first love to look back on those times with spiritual nostalgia. We may have matured since then and deepened our affection, deepened in different areas of our discipleship, but we should look back on those days of love and long to be back there. That's the first step. We have to look back and want that again. Look back longingly. And then, when we have that longing to recapture that love, Jesus gives us the next step. Again, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. (laughs) One simple word, repent. Now, when when you and I hear the word repent, we often associate it with stopping a certain action, right? Stop doing this. But that's not what the word actually means. Jesus is going to address actions in his next step. But here, by using the word repent, Jesus is actually beginning to address the mindsets that these Christians have and that we have. Because the Greek word for repent is metanoia which simply means a changing of mindset or laying aside of one mindset 
for another, which is why I love that Jesus puts this forward as step two. Remember what it was like before, have some spiritual nostalgia for the love that you had at first, and then here, step two, change up or forsake any mindset that you have that has led you to no longer have that first love. Repent, change or forsake the mindset that you have that is keeping you from experiencing a prioritized love for Jesus. That's step two that Jesus gives. Now this leads me to one very important application and it's going to sting a little bit, okay? Jesus identifies the loss of their love not being due to a season in life, but with a wrong mindset. Let me say it another way. When our love for Jesus has faded, we must be careful to not automatically blame it on a change of season in our life that has made it too difficult to stay close to Jesus. The restoration process that Jesus puts forward here involves not a change of circumstances, but a change of mindset. And for many of us here, the mindset that we need to change, that we need to repent of, the one we need to forsake, is that life is simply too busy for nearness to Jesus. Listen, I, I really do get it. I'm a parent of two young kids. I do a lot for this little church. I often feel pulled in a thousand different directions. And the sad reality is that Devotion to Jesus is often the first thing on the chopping block when I'm tired or when I'm flustered. Can I say that as your pastor? I just did. That's the first thing to go. I struggle, friends, with prioritizing real nearness to Jesus. Now, there's a form of nearness to Jesus because I'm in ministry and it's a part of my job, <laughs> but that is much different than the lived nearness of rich love for him. I get it. I often have to, have, have to change my mindset that tells me that vegging out brings more relief than the nearness of Jesus. I have to repent of that often. I have to forsake the mindset that tells me that this is just a season of busyness and that I'll get back on to the whole nearness thing when life slows down. Friends, can I tell you a secret? Life is not going to get slower. It's not going to get less stressful. If you are waiting to get near to Jesus for when life slows down, that's never going to happen. You're going to run by life. You're going to run through life and never actually experience nearness to Jesus because there's always a better day, right? There's always a less stressful day somewhere out in the future that, again, never seems to come. We must have a change of mindset to restore that first love that we have, that we need, that Jesus commands here. We have to give up on any mindset that tells us it is out of reach or meant for another day. Now, I'm running super out of time, but let me finish Jesus' direction and then I'm in my seat, okay? Once we've experienced spiritual nostalgia and turned away from wrong mindsets, we have another simple step that Jesus gives, right there in verse five, again. Remember, therefore, the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
redo. So remember, repent, and now redo. Jesus doesn't tell us to seek some sort of one-time spiritual experience that will shock our affections back awake, right? I just need to turn on that new Maverick City and just like soak in it, right? No, Jesus tells us to get back to doing things again. He tells us to simply do again what we used to do. And this is because real love, love that lasts, always follows our action. If we are uh, to be, again, the type of Christian that experiences prioritized love for Jesus, we have to do the actions that prioritize Jesus. Super simple, right? Yeah, very very difficult. (laughs) If we want to have that restored love, we've got to get back to doing those things that we did before. Again, when you reflected earlier on those times in life where Jesus was everything to you, I would bet there were some practices that came up in your mind, right? There are some things that you used to give yourself to so often that actually garnered and fed that love. Jesus says here simply, do that again. And that's because who we are is often determined by what we do. Listen to this from R.J. Snell in his book, Acedia and His Discontents. It's a complicated book, but this quote is really good. There is no virtue without repetition. And so we stay put in different practices. We sink our roots deep and find the rich soil of virtue. And this line right here, we become the people we are by what we choose to do again. Or this from James K. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. If you want to have a restored love, first remember, look back with spiritual nostalgia, then repent, change whatever mindset is keeping you from that first love, and then simply, friends, Redo. <laughs> Do the things that you did at first because we become the people we are. We become the type of disciples that we are by what we choose to do again. Your love for Jesus today is as strong as your habits or faint as your habits. We must pick up again and redo. Now again, all of this, friends, as Jesus calls these churches and calls us to change, is a mercy of Jesus. All of this is possible. We can remember, we can repent, and we can redo, because we know that when that happens, we will meet a Savior who is ready to restore our love. And that's the good news for you this morning. I don't know about you, but whenever I get cold in my love, I don't often think that when I finally get up again and walk towards Jesus, that the relationship is gonna be okay immediately right off, right? I'm gonna have to prove to him again that this time I'll stay. This time I'll stay close more consistently. Friends, that's not true. Paul says in the letter to Ephesians, awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. That's good news for you today. If your love has been lost, if your love for Jesus has faded, if you will just simply awake again, the promise is that Christ will shine on you. He will not chide you for how long your love has been faded. He will not ask you to prove yourself that your love can be kept. He will love you from the outset. 
And so friends, as we hear Jesus's message and strong message to this church in Ephesus, which in many ways I think confronts each and every one of us, because this is the category we all struggle with, do not let the shame of that faded love keep you from actually getting back up and walking toward Jesus. His mercy, even in our prolonged absence of love, is always enough, friend. Awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I thank you that your mercy is not dependent on our consistency that your grace and your acceptance of us is not dependent on how, how warm our hearts are towards you. When we are faithless, you remain faithful, oh God. And we thank you for that. And Father, we, we repent of the ways and the, 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 the mindsets that we've had that have kept us cold towards you for so long. God, we wanna change that about us and we ask that your spirit would help us to change that and to look back towards you and want that love we had at first, that love that prioritized your son above all. Help us to not accept a Christian faith that is simply surviving, but give us the, the longing to actually thrive, to be back there again where we were and yet more mature now. <laughs> And so, Father, would you help us by your spirit? Would you help us to believe that your grace has not run out for us, even though sometimes our love for you has? And help us to walk back towards you and re-implement the practices in our life that will center your son in our life. It's in his gracious and merciful name that we ask these things. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.